0: Going to be looking at a documentary based on a best selling book called The Bible Unearthed and exploring the field of biblical archaeology. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rabbi React and our mini series on The Bible Unearthed and generally speaking on claims that archaeology disproves the Bible or, or archaeology kind of shows the biblical stories are, are later uh, than the Torah says they are. And we are now in our fourth episode and we're going to be looking back at a claim that is made in the documentary, a bit early in the bits we've been analyzing till now. And this claim is kind of a refutation of an argument that the Torah texts really do cohere with the period in which they're written. Let me explain a little bit of background here. There was a period, I think in the 60s and 70s when archeologists had noticed a very strong correlation between things the Torah says in small details about the time of the patriarchs of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, this seemed to really line up with what was being found archaeologically. Now, truth is, archaeological finds with writing are extremely rare that far back in history, and one amazing area is called Mari, and there were a few others where they found uh, an enormous amount of preserved clay with writing generally don't get things like that. And they found things like names and and, and, and travel routes and so on. And so it was, hey, if this level of detail is accurate, then broadly speaking, that story is accurate. You can argue, you know, people might not believe the miracle part of God part, but it's good history, which also raises the question of, of, it must have been some kind of well-recorded thing to get it that accurate. And in this Documentary, they reject all of that. And they say actually there is no real evidence that lines up the patriarchal period with when the Torah says it is. And we're going to join them at about 28 minutes through when, when they begin to discuss and kind of just um, brush this off. And let's see, how, let's see how it's done. The early scholars attempted to place Abraham in a historic context of the Amorite invasions. So for those who haven't been following till now, this is actually, this is Neil Asher Silberman. He's a Bible scholar, author of the book, um, one of the two authors of the book, The Bible Unearthed. And he's kind of sort of leading through. He's not the narrator, but he's here he is on screen uh, going to talk about this topic.
1: But do we believe that this could be true today? The Amorites are people that are well documented at the end of the third and beginning of the second millennium. And it was very tempting to link Abraham's migration with that of the Amorites. However, the Amorite migrations primarily occurred in a west-east direction, whereas Abraham, in contrast, went from east to west. As a consequence, the link is not as obvious as was once thought.
0: So let's, let's break that down. The claim that they're kind of moving aside is is that we know there was some kind of Amorite invasion and maybe Abram was part of this Amorite invasion, but actually the mass Amorite movements were not really in that direction anyway. Now the Turks and claim Abram's part of any mass Amorite movement, invasion or migration at all. The question is, the story is a migration from somewhere Mesopotamia towards Canaan. Is that plausible? Is that not? And in which periods could that have happened? So you'd say, well, could be any period, right? It turns out that's not true. Now there's a really important piece of work done in the mid 20th century, I think somewhere in the 1960s, called Ancient Mesopotamia, Portrait of a Dead Civilization. By at the time, the top Assyriologist, I think called Oppenheim, Adolf Leo Oppenheim. Somebody once described that nobody's read more cuneiform, the ancient Mesopotamian script, than he. And he has a line in there that is critical that remains true to this day. And here's what he says. There seems to have been very few periods in the history of the region when, and he goes on a little bit, and he says, when any private citizen have just migrated. The way things worked, and I explain why this is quite soon, is there was quite strong political control and quite strong social limits, and people stayed pretty much where they were. The only people who were allowed to move was international, or who did move, were the international traders or militaries going through. Individual citizens do not move around and certainly do not mass migrate, except for a few centuries where things were very different in the early second millennium bce exactly the sort of time the torah tells us about this patriarchal migration now in addition we actually do have a a torah picture of ancient mesopotamia for example in genesis chapter 14 you have the war of a coalition of kings coming down from mesopotamia to raid parts of of israel in order to make sure they'll pay taxes but here's the interesting thing that we now know archaeologically There were very few times when coalitions of kings were working in ancient Mesopotamia. Why? Because it was under empires. Under empires, you didn't have lots of kings. You had one ruler. So you had an Akkadian empire that really only comes to an end, let's say, around about 2000 to 1900 BCE. And then you start to get from around the mid-17th century BCE, let's say about 1650, the strong Assyrians, either Syria or Babylon all the time. So you no longer have little kings or, or even big kings in the area who can come together in a coalition and raid Israel. Any 7th century author or 8th century author or 10th century author or even 12th century author looking around at the world around them would only assume people coming from Mesopotamia came as one big empire. For centuries and centuries, nobody had known anything else. Yeah, the Torah describes a coalition of kings. And guess what we now know archaeologically? Exactly that time period between about 1900 BCE till about 1650 BCE, there is no central empire and there's records of coalitions of kings that come and expand and do raids and so on. So the story seems to be exactly right. It's actually remarkable how could a human later author have known that level of history so much before. But let's go on to another line in the documentary where a few minutes later they come back and again are just going to dismiss evidence of this type. John Van Seeters, an internationally recognized expert, has been working on the Nuzi tablets
1: for a long time. The tablets contain a story similar to that of Sarah, Abraham's barren wife in the Bible. account for a barren woman who gives her maidservant to her husband in order to bear children for her. Something of this kind seemed to show up in the Newsy tablets. And so the scholar said aha, here we have something. Here we have a way of linking Abraham with this particular period. And this was uh, very attractive. But there were some problems. The problems was that scholars were so concentrated on the documents of the second millennium that they forgot to look at the documents in the first millennium. And when one looked through the same kind of uh, literature, the same kind of archival documents of the first millennium, the same customs show up in these texts. So taking all of these things together, they really prove absolutely nothing.
0: All right. Now, that would be, a, of course, a nice place to stop if he just said, okay, so we don't have proof one way or the other. But of course, then the documentary goes on and says, well, actually we do, we can see all these things that were clearly later, which we've already talked about in previous episodes. If you haven't watched them, please do. Um, but let's just talk about this little comment over here. I'm not going to get into the details. I think he, he may well be right, actually, that certain practices clearly were done at lots of periods of time. Although if you do read Kenneth Kitchens, I've recommended this very strongly on the reliability of the Old Testament. Um, if you do read that, you'll see he takes issue with many of these claims and says, well, they were much more prevalent when the Torah says they were, and much less prevalent later. We're not going to get into those details, but there are certain things that are just not discussed in this documentary. And I think it's a bit unfair, maybe even disingenuous, because these are big scholars who are very familiar with arguments like the ones I'm just going to put to you just a few, and again, feel free to research them further. So one of them is what I just quoted a few moments ago, the way the Torah describes the the idea that a free person could just migrate uh, from... Mesopotamia towards Canaan. And by the way, we know ancient migrations were in all directions. Later, they were almost exclusively West East and individual citizens didn't do them. But the Torah describes free migration. That we saw is very accurate exactly to that time period. The Torah describes coalitions of kings, something a later author would just not have known about. And there's only one small period in history it could happen. It's exactly there. By the way, one of those kings is the king of Elam, Elam, we know only one period, because they come from a little bit further east, was interested and involved in Mesopotamian politics and moved across occasionally into Western Syria. And again, boom, exactly that period of time that the Torah puts it at. something that was not true later on in history and had not been true for centuries. If if it was a human author in the 13th or 10th, or what they think 8th and 7th centuries BCE, would definitely not have been able to know that sort of information. So at the very least it's showing the historical accuracy of details in the biblical story. And Kitchen has a whole chapter. He shows loads online. You can find lots of arguments backwards and forwards. But I'll give you just one or two other examples. In fact, one particular one that is incredibly striking is the price of slaves. We know that when Joseph is sold as a slave, he gets 20 shekel. We know we actually have prices of slaves at various points in history. Once you get to, let's say, when some of these authors think that the biblical texts are written, it's much more than 20 shekel. But at the time Joseph is sold, it is exactly 20 shekel. That is the standard price of a slave, plus or minus a little bit where you could haggle. But basically, 20 shekel is right. Now, a later author would have lived, if there really was, a, let's say, a 7th century BC author, they would have lived in a world where, where nobody had heard of a slave being, let's say, less than, I don't know, 50 shekel. If they were writing in the 6th century BC, making up the story, or fifth, nobody would have heard of a, a slave that wasn't 90 shekel. Now, the slaves moved up very slowly in price, but people would not have heard of the idea of, of selling a slave for 20 shekel. Yet the Torah gets it exactly right. They weren't ancient archeologists. They weren't digging up slates and trying to work out what ancient prices had been. But these are the sorts of details of the story that the Torah is getting accurate one after another, after another, all the way through, that suggest either the author's knowledge of that time period, or there's some very strong tradition being brought down in very accurate details. But certainly this does not look like any evidence for an 8th or 7th or 6th century BC. On the contrary, this is like something much, much earlier with an incredibly accurate and well-preserved tradition. So we've analysed so far some of the key claims in the book and the documentary, The Bible Unearthed, in which the authors want to argue that the biblical story, the story of Genesis in particular, does not line up with... The archaeological findings, and we've shown actually it does, and many, many important pieces of data that. It's just ignored in the book and the documentary and then they argue that oh so many parts of Genesis seem to cohere with an 8th or 7th century BCE world that probably an author was looking around at their world and assuming it had been backwards and that's when texts start to emerge the biblical texts and we analyzed them and found in fact in every case it was not true in the next episode we're going to look at the exodus and the claim that there's no archaeological validity to the exodus story and we can explore that because that's going to be volume 2 but before then I just want to leave you with the following. You can do the following thought experiment. Imagine a bible was being written in the 8th or 7th century BC, like they claim. The Torah text, the books of Moses, or the post-exilic era. Which is the most important city in ancient Israel and Judah at that point? You know it, it's Jerusalem, right? So Here's something amazing. In the biblical corpus, in the Old Testament, in all the the over 20 books, there are numerous, hundreds of references to Jerusalem. There isn't a single book that doesn't reference Jerusalem. Even wisdom literature references Jerusalem always, with the exception of the books of Moses, the Torah. Now, could you imagine a priestly scribe or a royal scribe in the 8th century BCE looking at their world and not have Abraham go and visit this place Jerusalem as one day gonna become the center, not have him offer his son on Mount Moriah, just say it's Jerusalem. I mean, there's traditions linking the two, but the Torah just didn't say so. Could you imagine anybody who wants to centralize their monarchy or bring the exiles back to Jerusalem and forget to put that word in? The Torah is clearly being written before Jerusalem's the, the central capital. Now, you might say, no, but maybe the author wanted it to look that way okay but they put in all the other holy sites they didn't need to call it the capital but they needed it to be there if it's important to them it surely should have been important to god and to the patriarchs and it isn't 700 times jerusalem appears all over the bible but not in those books that claim to be written before the 10th century bce that surely is one of the biggest signs that it clearly is written before the 10th century bce i'll give you another one guess what the most important building is from the 8th century and the 7th century and the post-exilic times it's the temple the fixed house of God in Jerusalem. Guess how many times the fixed house of God appears in the Torah? Precisely zero. Dozens of chapters on the portable temple. Dozens, including how you embroider and weave it together, how you do the fabrics and the metalwork. Could you not think of a clearer piece of evidence that is written at a time when that portable tabernacle, the Mishkan, is there? So we've seen episode one of the Bible on Earth. We've analyzed its core arguments, and these are very respected scholars but probably not quite at the mainstream of where biblical scholars and archaeologists hold. They are what's called the minimalists, and they argue as best they can for the non-historicity of the Torah. But we've looked at some of the core arguments that are just made on this documentary as if that's what it is, and when we analyze them, especially in light occasionally of more modern discoveries, but even stuff that was available at the time of the documentary, we actually see enormous evidence for the accuracy and the historicity of the book of Genesis. Next, we're gonna get into episode two, where we're going to be exploring that great chestnut, the Exodus, is there evidence, is there not? Looking forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, please remember to like, subscribe, and hit the notification button, and we'll see you next time. Today, we're gonna be looking at the Exodus. Nothing of that shows up in the archeological or textual record. They lived in tents. Hi everyone, thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed what you saw, Please click on the like and subscribe and hit the notification button below. Thanks so much.